The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. The UCAP gang is starting to get excited about the upcoming air show season. That, and the threat that spring may be about to arrive, has them waxing rhapsodic about kneeboards and straight-in approaches, wild paraglider rides and cracked windshields, beer and brats. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 17, A Wild Ride. If it comes to a point where you direly need that crib information right. that's printed on it, right. at that point you're taking all that paper and throwing it to hell. Flying <laughs> <laughs> runs in my background. My uncle's a chief flight instructor at Com Air. My dad's a private pilot, and my grandpa also advises me. All right, uh, everybody got their beverages and. Uh, uh, Got my spar and I got my orange crush. That's right, and uh, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm using plain old water this evening. And uh, Dave, your beverage of choice this evening is uh, Linen Kugel's Red. Yeah, Liney. I like his choice best. I've got Sam Adams. Sam Adams said that Sam's, Sam's a good choice. Yeah, I like the Lineys because. Uh, Always puts me in an Oshkosh head. That's what I was going to say. Lineys is what we drink at Oshkosh, yeah. Yeah, but I don't. I, I guess I can get Lineys around here. I've just never tried. Uh-huh. And, it, I, I, and it's kind of pres- two bucks for a twelve pack. It's two bucks less per twelve pack than. Yeah, I kind of kind of prefer reserve the Lineys for Oshkosh, you know. But that's right because there aren't enough special things that week. That's that right. That's right. That's right. Anyways, well, I I usually save up my broad allowance. for... Yeah, that's right. Your broad allowance and and what else for, for uh, the year? That's yeah. right. That's right. It would be two. Is it? Is that a like? Is that a financial thing or is that a cholesterol related thing? It's a cholesterol dietary health, healthy. You know, if if I ate brats as often as I think about them down here, uh, then I wouldn't be able to eat them at Oshkosh at all. I see. Yeah. I see. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, Good evening, and welcome to episode number 17 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, up here in Boston, Massachusetts, and and, uh, we're just all babbling about uh, beer and bratwursts and... And I'm not sure what else. But, Was it five more months now? Something like Less that, yeah. Less Something like that. But two five is what we're months. two is the countdown we're really working on. We'll, we'll I just want to get through the weekend, man. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not real particular. I well, want spring it, to be it, here. Everybody's working on. I'm week. telling you, man. Yeah. It's like practically spring-like up here. It's. Been, it was. It, it was very nice here the last. 36 hours or so, and yeah. then a dry cold front blew in this afternoon. That's true. It, it is supposed to be cold And tomorrow. it's freaking cold out there. Yeah. It's, All uh, of a sudden. But it's been nice. It's uh, it's it's Thursday night, uh, for those of you who are trying to keep track of these things. It's Thursday evening. Uh, the uh, What is it? The 21st? The 22nd? Or, oh, are we recording now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's Thursday the 22nd, and, uh, and uh, we're recording the uh, in the evening, and it's been beautiful in Boston for a couple of, I mean, beautiful season-wise for um, certainly a lot better than the, than the teens and single digits we had for a while there. So uh, I'm optimistic that spring is arriving, although we are going to get a little bit of a slap in the face tomorrow, like as like you said, Jim, yeah. but uh, but then, uh, then spring will continue to come, and I was just thrilled the other day to suddenly discover that next week is March. 
Woohoo! Ooh, oh, you're right. Next week is March, Just so uh, our next episode will record on March first. So, uh, so see, it's it's coming slowly but surely. Tides of March. It's Beware. coming. Beware. So what's going on? Oh, I got to introduce. I say, we got you all out of sync. I'm telling you, this La- is ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, from here on out, we're not responsible for anything that happens. <laughs> Who's on first? I don't know. I've okay. had a difficult day technologically. I'm sorry. So I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit disoriented here, but I uh, it would be incredibly remiss of me not to say hello to my friends uh, sitting around the virtual hangar here. Uh, Jeb is there, Jeb Burnside, and talking to us from Springfield, Virginia. And as everyone knows, Jeb is an aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and he's also a contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Good evening, Jack. Good evening, David. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm trying to decide oh, how. I'm trying to decide how early in that little sequence. Of of talking about beer and brats, I'm going to pick up the recording because you did use a, a nasty word, and I'm, I'm yeah. trying to figure out what I'm going to do about that. But yeah. uh, I just let it roll. Yeah, just let put, it roll. We'll put a beep. Yeah, we'll put a little beep. We'll put the little stall warning horn sim, uh, uh, noise yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also with us tonight is Dave Higdon. Dave talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Uh, he's an Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. How you doing, Dave? Oh, it's been so warm here i started to see open cockpit airplanes come out of hibernation weeks early that's nice yeah very cool yeah so what's going on out there this week? Uh, there's been uh, the, 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 there was one really weird story last week. We I think it was last week or sometime recently. We talked about that King Air that yeah, had yeah. a windshield crack at altitude right. and ran into all kinds of nasty problems and miraculously they saved their lives. Um, and then miraculously, uh, and then like a week or so later, there's this story about this whole rash, bizarre series of. Air of windshields cracking out of aircraft operating out of Denver. Is that what the story was? Denver International. Yeah. 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 Who knows something the, more the about new this one, story? Not the old yeah. one. So, so tell us what the story was. What 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 happened? Dave, go ahead. Well, they they had major cold, uh, sub freezing, uh, and big winds. Uh, you know, some sometimes getting into the hundred knot territory. Uh, and nobody knows exactly why they're investigating this, but I believe it was 14 airliners suffered cracked windshields, most of them sitting on the ground at Denver International uh, in a 24-hour period. Uh, really bizarre. Uh, nobody, you know, cuts across model lines, manufacturer mm-hmm. lines, yeah. uh, uh, carrier fleet lines, you name it. Um, what we don't know is, for example, <laughs> yeah, well, about everything. I mean, we understand um, some CRJs, some Canadair regional jets, and some Embraer Brasilias. Um, one carrier mentioned was SkyWest. Um, Frontier Airlines also had two of its planes uh, um, damaged by the same problem. Um very odd. I, I I wonder if, however, the uh, material or the manufacturer of the 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 uh, windshield panels themselves might not be common to all of this. It's I don't know. a possibility. I don't know. You would think that's one of the first things that they would have looked at. Uh... It, well, yeah, I suspect they're not finished looking either. Uh huh. Um, thank God, all this was just 
you know, on the ground with, uh, at sitting at the gate. Well, it didn't one or two of them happened in flight, though? I well, a couple of frontiers apparently were in flight, yeah. Yeah, but, no, I mean, there was nothing catastrophic. There were no pressure failures or anything like that, right? No, only one was in flight. Uh, only one? Okay. Only one. Well, I should say only one. The others were uh, uh, on short final or uh, at the at the uh, whole short line waiting to take off. Right. That's, that's just bizarre. But it's just, you know, and you read the stories, and it's typical of, of mainstream media stories about aviation. I find it kind of amusing that they, that the the reporters were, were trying to kind of write what might be causing this, and they were saying, wind gusts to 80 miles an hour, you know, yeah. as if, as if it, wind, these windshields are not, like, designed to handle at least right. 80 mile an hour winds. <laughs> right. but, uh, <laughs> well, let's see, if I remember right, it's about a three and a half pound bird at 400 knots. Exactly, right. yeah. So, uh, so I don't know, you know, and so exactly, you I mean, remember, you, you, you can't even... Remember, you have to remember to thaw the bird. Yeah, I know. That's the story, right? That's the story. So maybe we'll try and tell that story someday. Who knew turkeys could fly? Exactly, exactly. So anyways, the windshields are cracking. We have no idea why. Nobody was hurt. Uh, It's a big mystery. Um, Dave thinks it was terrorists. No, I want to know if if Homeland Security has gotten involved yet. And, and, and I mean, if cold the, if, is a terrorist, if spot. we can't figure out who's cracking these windshields, the terrorist will have won. That's right. Hey, there, wait a minute, careful. Our cynicism is creeping in again. No. All right. Well, so we don't have an answer to that one. What's next here? Um, but just check your glass good before you go flying. That's right. I, I mean, I guess that's a really good point. If you have fly an airplane that has, you know, well, I guess any kind of glass, but certainly one that is in any way pressurized, right? I guess uh, yeah. make sure that's a, a extra part of your pre-flight for, for the time being. Well, year, year, years ago, we were induced into replacing a windshield on a 61 Comanche when the, uh, uh, when, when the maintenance shop was getting ready to do an annual, towed it out of a 10-degree hanger and into a 60-degree hanger. Uh-huh. And uh, a uh, scratch line on this uh, tenth of an inch thick windshield uh, reacted to the temperature change by cracking completely through. Wow. Wow. The, the guys in the shop heard it happen. Wow. Go crack, 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 crack. So we put in a new one-piece quarter-inch thick, and uh, after a bird strike in uh, in uh, Miss- Mississippi, we were glad we did. I, I guess that's true. I mean, I suggested a minute ago that it was really only important if you fly in some sort of pressurized environment, but um, even flying your Cessna 150 at 120 knots, you know, under the right circumstances, you might want didn't, that didn't windshield. It didn't take much of a bird to yeah. really ruin your day. Yeah. To, to be I've, as, yeah. I've, I've got half-inch plexi on the windshield of my airplane previous owner uh installed it thankfully and it's it's, it's quiet it's i know very little is going to be able to very little that i'll uh, encounter is going to be able to come through that windshield yeah say what kind of airplane you have um beach debonair uh-huh. okay moving on moving right along moving on moving right along <laughs> a little item uh no i'm going to hold that one to the end um so there was a st- <laughs> 
There was a story in the news. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There was a story in the news. I forget even what the story was because I think the story is not all that interesting about uh, – oh, I know. It was a historical story about kneeboards throughout history. Uh, and uh, Where about, did you see this? Uh, on uh, GA News' uh, – General okay. Aviation News' website. Okay. And they had a little story about you know sort of the, the, the first kneeboard, which was actually – it was like one of the earliest flights ever. It was when they were testing um, – uh, from Langley's Aerodrome down near Washington, D.C., and they were testing um, uh, uh, boat-launched aircraft off of the Potomac River. And it talked about how the pilot actually sewed a compass to the leg of his pants so that he had a little compass right there um, on his on in his lap. And uh, This was before anybody invented an instrument panel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, so the... Uh, what that really got me to thinking about was I, you know, and I've done relatively little flying compared to you guys, but I've had like three or four different solutions for how I keep my cockpit stuff organized. You know, I mean, I've had a simple knee board that was just on one knee. I've had this lap board that went across my lap. I, I've had various other, you know, things you mount on the yoke and, you know, right. and, and I was just wondering if you guys had any thought. I mean, what do you guys do? You know, because you do a lot of flying and, and a lot of long flying cross country flying much more than I do. Um, how do you keep organized in the cockpit? The main thing I need is something to write on. Yeah, um, that's the big deal. That's the big deal for me. Now, back in the day, I mean, when I was working on my private and, and even after I got my instrument rating, um, I would go to elaborate lengths to, to flight plan something. I would plot courses on charts. I would write down headings and, and distances and, and uh, a, a proposed ETE and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, back in the days of when there wasn't even Lorraine, as we talked about you know, last in our last episode. Um, and I actually followed the, the fill out a complete flight log and followed through it. And, and it was fun. It was a great exercise. Right? You know, What's the ground speed going to be on this leg? What's the heading going to be? That kind of thing. Um, it's how you learn pilotage. You're right. It's how you learn pilotage. Now, thankfully, you know, there's a VOR needle wagging at me. So I wasn't going to get it completely lost. <clears throat> Nowadays, uh, I, I have a, a a little aluminum box. It's rectangular and flat uh, that I got at a Staples store that is a... Uh, like a uh, an invoice form uh, holder, and it's, as I say, it's it's stamped aluminum. It's um, the kind of thing a delivery driver might. Get. Right, right. You put a pad yeah. of paper in it, and and uh, you can write. It. It's a you write write on forms and things like that. Um, and I keep a, a pad of paper in there with a pen, and it's got uh, a couple of clips to hold other stuff down, um, and. Um, kind of keep my tax sheet on that and, and a few other things and that's just indispensable I, i've got to have something handy to write on i don't strap it to my knee it's just loose in the cockpit mm -hmm. i uh i use just a plain old uh standard sporty's pilot shop kneeboard yeah that had a crib sheet you know with you know little the, the, things the, like the, cruising altitude right 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 but you know uh hold pattern entries and mm -hmm. and and but be, I've generally tended to use bound charts. Yeah, I do too. And to stop short of getting into you know promoting somebody's business, so I'll just say not everybody 
may be aware of these things. Uh, you know, the standard old NOS charts uh, or, or JEPs are fine, but they take up a lot of space. And I found the bound charts to be real easy. I'm left-handed, so I put the knee board on my right knee because it made it easier to reach across and write on it. Huh. And then drape the bound chart book on my left leg, and I was good to go. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's and an interesting it, way of doing it. Because yeah, I know, you, I, yeah, when you're trying to write, I'm right-handed. I try and write on my right knee. Sometimes my hard. Short, yeah. my my elbow will bump into things, right. and you, or, or your hand will get tangled up in the yoke, or you know. Right. Well, that, right that's next. why. That's that's one of the reasons I don't strap anything to my legs. Um, this this knee board. Now I've, I have used knee boards in the past, Dave. You were talking about the the sporties yeah. uh, uh, thing with uh, all the uh, background or uh, backup information printed on it. I, I I have one of those. I found it in a rental airplane once, and kind of it kind of found its way into my flight bag. But uh, <laughs> I bought this, this thing as a. As you a, were just a, cleaning up the airplane. That's I was, all. I was tidying up. Yeah, exactly. Tidying up. Yeah. But I've never figured out how you're supposed to take all the all the paper and crap you've got on top of that knee board and look at, at what's printed on it while you're flying along <laughs> single handedly without an autopilot. Hey, if, that if, part that part has escaped me. Well, you see, the thing is, if it comes to a point where you direly need. That crib information right. that's printed on it. Right. At that point, you're taking all that paper and throwing it the hell over. <laughs> <your shoulder. laughs> you know, that's out the window, babe. That's right. Uh, that's right. But I bought this kneeboard uh, as an ultralight pilot twenty odd years ago, and wow. found out real quickly that it was useless yeah. uh, in an ultralight. You know, just uh, the, the the wind flowing across uh -huh. my leg just blew the paper to pieces. Yeah, I can't even imagine how you manage this kind of stuff in in an, in that kind of an open situation. Well, I know. Go to an office supply store and get a little uh, uh, paper sleeve uh -huh. like you put in a three ring notebook, and then I'd put pages of a road atlas in there. Uh huh. Kind of like kind of like what you do on a motorcycle. Right. Yeah, kind of like that, right. and then right. tape it to my leg or, or right. use a Velcro strap to hold it to my leg, and that right. worked fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, when you're doing 50 miles an hour, you don't fly a page on a road atlas very quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I uh, um, My father, well, I literally inherited from my father a uh, an old Jeppesen um, kneeboard that it's uh, plastic, and it's got little trays that slide out from <clears throat> from the mid part of it and it's got a, oh, wow. a huge Fancy. clip on it and it's got it's got batteries powered battery powered uh, light for it yeah. you can switch the light from white to red uh and it's it's just a really neat piece um i've never used it he flew with it for a number of years um but it's it's kind of in my collection of stuff mm-hmm it's it's really it's cool. a really neat kneeboard. Well, I'd love to hear from our listeners if yeah. uh, you folks have any uh, any cool ways of keeping organized in the cockpit. Uh, any you know like uh, particularly something you came up with on your own. Yeah, like like Dave's Staples solution, you know, or mm -hmm. or, or you know sort of non aviation items that you're applying to the you cockpit. So you sewed a portable GPS to your shorts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. What comes around goes around, or goes Which around comes around. Right. That's right. So send those in. Send them to uh, to podcast at uncontrolled airspace. 
So last night I was at a uh, at a, a a little geek gathering. It was a, a gathering here in Greater Boston of uh, people who do podcasts, and it was fun. I met a lot of interesting people, some of whom I already knew, and some of whom I didn't know. There's One really of, a group for that? Uh, yeah, there sure are, and uh, it's very interesting. You learn a lot about what some of the other kinds of pod. I mean, I was I it, it was able to you know do a little plug for our podcast uh, to these folks, and I, there's a guy who does a podcast about marathon running, and there's another guy who does a comedy podcast, and there's a couple of guys Guys that do political podcasts and a, a how to fund your uh, your uh, uh, college education. I mean, there's just you name it. There's podcasts out there, and uh, and I met a bunch of them. There must have been 20 people at this little gathering, and we kind of commandeered the corner of a restaurant out in Natick, which is a town just west of Boston. And uh, one, so I plugged the po- uh, uncontrolled airspace there, and and it was pleasant to kind of get some nods. You know, people seemed very interested. One person in particular, uh, a young woman, a woman in her in her 20s named. Kristen uh, ah. came came up to me and uh, now it all makes yeah it comes together. Yes. Kristen Kristen came up and said hi and uh, said she was very interested in uh, uh, in aviation. Although she wasn't uh, into flying, um, she had always been interested in flying. She grew up near an airport, and I'm blanking on the name of it. She, for her, the first thing she asked me was she named this airport in uh, in Connecticut. Uh, I wish I could remember the name, but it had a really fun name, like you know. Golden Acres or something like that, but uh, um, and it was there when she was a kid, and then now she's uh, you know a little more grown and has some money. She wanted to go back there and take a flying lesson, and her dad said, "Oh no, they're closed now." And and so we were talking about airports closing and what the prognosis is, and then she was telling me how she wanted to learn how to fly, and I told her what we tell everyone, which is that you just got to go to whatever airport that's friendly and nearby and ask for the demo flight. And I told her exactly how to do that and what to expect, and uh, and I just wanted to say hi to Kristen and. She said she was going to listen to our podcast, so um, if she is, I encourage her to, to follow through. And uh, Christian, we, there will be a quiz. That's right. <laughs> we think we, we, we sort of talked about it, and we decided that maybe Norwood Airport, which is here also just, just southwest of Boston, might be the place for her to go and uh, look for her demo ride. So I want to encourage you, Kristen, make sure you do it, and also make sure that you report back to us afterwards. Yep. She, said, she said she was going to start a podcast. She was going to like do, this, do the, uh, the student pilot will thing and uh, start a podcast about learning to fly and i said very that, cool good, more the merrier good deal do it so uh well, we could offer her you know a, a regular re- or a recurring spot here also absolutely right. absolutely with that's not actually i hadn't even thought of that that's a really excellent idea Kristen, where, where does Kristen live Kristen grew up in Connecticut. She lives in Boston now. She's a student um, at. Uh, she told you gotta us be able to, you, you got to be able to come up with a nice grassroots airport to recommend to her. Right, so, and I and I've heard that that's kind of hard to find a Boston airport. Yeah, the, it's it's the you know I mean, if you want to go up to uh, uh, in the southern New Hampshire, Hampton Field is a Northampton Field is a really cool little grass strip with a lot of great um, um, old airplanes. They do uh, open cockpit biplane rides all summer long, and there's a lot of tail dragger activity there and 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 a, and a lot of you know kind of your, your typical recreational aircraft and uh, that's a great airport northampton it's a little bit i got the feeling that that was a little bit outside of her sphere of travel um and it's she because she's from the south from the sort of connecticut area i think heading towards the norwood area was sounded like it may be a little bit more uh, more you know approachable for her but northampton's a great airport um beverly has a really nice airport that's a medium size or a small tower airport a medium size airport and uh 
what else? I mean, there's a lot of airports in the greater Boston area. I, what I did, I recommended that she stay away from places like Hanscom um, or Lawrence, which are much larger, busier airports. And uh, so uh, I think Norwood would be a good solution, a good choice for her. And, uh, oh, cool. Well, and, good, good. Uh, Let us know, Kristen. Look forward to hearing more yeah, from, from Kristen about her adventures. Yeah. Yeah. We just love con- uh, pro- uh, 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 <laughs> new, new, new members. That's exactly what we love. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. That's all, folks. We got uh, our first audio comments this past week. Uh, two of them, as a matter of fact, used our listener line to call in. Audio comments that we can actually play on the air? Things that we can we actually, can actually play on the air, to. so we're going to actually hear yeah. uh, from a couple of our listeners here. The first That's one, and um, he didn't leave his name. At least I didn't catch it. Now, maybe we, as we listen again, we might catch his name, but I believe he said he's from Minneapolis. Um, he, and he, it starts, it's a little bit long. Bear with it. Um, it starts out a little slow. But he actually moves into a very interesting story subject, and I think it's something that might uh, prompt some conversation by us. So, uh, so let's take a listen to this uh, a listener from Minneapolis. Hello, guys. Uh, talking to you. I'm a long-time listener, and I really appreciate your uh, podcast. It's great to have uh, some people in the know here talking about uh, aviation issues. Um, well, it seems like everybody's talking right now is you know, a user fee uh, issue, and um, I'm kind of like wondering how it's going to affect me personally. Um, been a, I'm a three-year pilot, a 300 hours aircraft owner uh, on a beach, musketeer, um, AMP, IA for 17 years, and also avionics for 17 years. Um, I live in Minnesota, I, uh, Minneapolis, but uh, I'm just a VFR pilot, and I use the uh, Garmin 396 for my weather and stuff. And I, I just, I haven't ever need, need, had a need for uh, IFR flights. Um, uh, the whole being in the system I just don't enjoy. Uh, the only time I ever use the system is uh, I'll do flight following when I fly up north uh, where the population left and you know, there's a lot of trees. And if you actually did go down, you know, want someone to know where you're at. So, um, maybe uh, two things you could maybe talk about or comment about. Uh, one would be um, if there was a user fee for general aviation, um, would general aviation just not use the system? Um, and what would be the ramifications for that? Uh, less um, um, safety, because people would be less apt to use the, you know, the under ATC control. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, do we really need the IFR? Um, I'm sure it's different on the coast and in the mountains, but here in the Plain States, uh, um, there's been a very, very, very few days that uh, I've uh, canceled because of weather. Or um, Personally, I don't find a need for, you know, the whole ATC ATC system. Um, so, as long as the user fees are not landing fees, I care less if they have user fees. Um, and uh, keep up the great work, and uh, hope to hear about uh, what your takes on all this user fee stuff is. So basically, his his thing is he says that uh, if user fees come in, it doesn't really matter all that much to him since he just won't use the part of the system that has fees. What do you think about that? Well, I think, first of all, he's very fortunate. 
that, um, as he says, he most of the times he flies, it's in good weather. Um, he doesn't apparently. Well, Minneapolis is a you know obviously a major major uh, uh, international airport, but uh, apparently he's based uh, you know fairly far out. He doesn't have to deal with ATC, uh, and because he's VFR only, he doesn't deal with ATC. Except when he does a little, you know, asks for a little flight yeah. following, yeah. and he goes up into thinner, thinner yeah. uh, traffic areas. Uh, you know, and I, I think the guy said his name at the beginning, but it was just he, not clear he, enough yeah. that, uh, for me to pick it up. My apologies, but, I missed it too. Yeah, but, uh, that makes three of us. I missed it too. It's not like Gary or Craig at the end, but uh, um, um, whoever you are, uh, thanks for the comment, first of all, uh, and, uh, and the question. Dave, you were about to say something. Well, he, he, he asked, you know, two really specific questions. Uh -huh. uh, you know, one, do you need IFR? When, uh -huh. You know, and if there's no fees with IFR, what's wrong with not using it? Uh, and he cites a difference in the Midwest versus the two coasts. And... Uh, I, I got to echo what Jeb just said. You know, you're you're fortunate if you're flying times out to where you don't really need it, and uh, not a thing wrong with that. Uh, I went several years without an instrument ticket, but the flying that I did took me to so many parts of the country uh, in such diverse times of year that inevitably I wound up, you know, two or three times a year stuck somewhere. For anywhere from one to five days, I had one instance. Five days it caused me to go finish my instrument ticket <laughs> because I couldn't get 60 miles to where it was VFR from right. where the airplane sat. Right. Uh, um, my, in my, you know, do you do, does does a pilot need an instrument rating? Uh, if the pilot wants to use the airplane for transportation, my answer would be yes. Yeah. Uh, if if. Um, you are out um, um, for the $100 hamburger. You really only fly on good days. Um, <clears throat> you're not trying to be, to, do, be on a schedule. You're pretty like short that. legs. You know, right. If you're going to right. visit friends 100, 200 miles away, chances are you're not going to cross any big weather systems, uh, you know, un, un, unexpectedly. Uh, but like Jeb says, if you want to be using your airplane for transportation, and be more reliable, or the most reliable that you can be, than an instrument ticket's a necessity. Yeah. Uh, that said, you know, I did several hundred hours of heavy cross-country without one. I just paid the price from time to time and an extra hotel nights and extra meals on the road. Right. I, I, could never, really, yeah, I could never guarantee to someone that I was going to be there. Yeah. Because, and can't you know, even do that with an it, instrument rating. It, it, it really can't can't really do that now. I can I can say I'll be there within twelve hours, pretty much. I might not be there, you know, at the date and time they they request, you know, three weeks earlier. Right. Um, uh, but but I'll get there. Yeah, I'll get there eventually. Um, the question I think it really is more generic to to talk about is. Uh, uh, if there's a fee for general aviation aircraft, would GA pilots just not use the system? Uh, well, first off, the current proposal only uh, sets up fees for GA pilots using Class B airspace. So there wouldn't be any day-to-day -day fees right. initially. Right. 
But once the system's set up that allows the FAA and this user panel that they've proposed, uh, once they're allowed to define fees that need to, ha or services that need to have fees applied, mm -hmm. there's no real check or balance uh, with the rest of the users on, uh, on uh, GA users in particular, on what new fees they might decide to assess over the years. That's one of the worries of, of GA pilots like us, that the fees they propose now isn't going to be the fees forever. Second, the proposal that they've made to Congress, that the FAA has made to Congress, is going to hit you anyway, user, yeah. pilot, friend from, from uh, Minneapolis. It's going to hit you anyway by uh, more than tripling the uh, fuel tax that you pay when you go flying. And as we talked about last time, uh, you know, if you're flying 100 hours a year, you'd be talking 400 bucks or so a year just in higher gas taxes. Well, another thing, too, is... Uh, there and that's without be, using the system. Right. That's there without would be, using there would, the system. There would be fees for certificates, uh, increased fees for certificates, and increased you can't do fees for, that. for medical certificates. And you can't do um, without that. You can't do without either of those. Um, it's just a matter of time before contacting a flight service station or filing a flight plan uh, is added to that list. And that's where um, we, we kind of transmogrify, if I can, if I can say that, uh, from... <laughs> you can say it, but... Being, being a system... Can you spell it? Can you spell it? Um, being a system based on, uh, on safety and, and equal access to one that's based on financial reward. And if that's the case, then, then safety is going to suffer. Yeah. That's right. uh, if I have to, th if I literally think twice about picking up the phone and calling flight service before I launch, because it's going to cost me X number of pennies or dollars, uh, I am going to think about it, and there will be times where I'll, I'll I won't call. Yeah, weather change. There, there will be times. There, there will be times when I don't file an IFR flight plan. Right. Because I quote think I can make it unquote, um, and that's where safety takes a hit. And that's one of the biggest problems um, for general aviation uh, from these proposals. Yeah. So this is this isn't going to let you off the hook, good pilot buddy from Minneapolis. Uh, if the proposal went through as written, uh, as 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 it exists right now, and you never filed an IFR flight plan, you never flew into a Class B airspace, uh, you never got your instrument ticket and had to use the instrument system. You're still going to be saddled with higher costs and new fees that uh, that that this proposal is going to result in. Yeah, so there you go. So yeah. Something to think about. Uh, if you agree that you know it's it, it it's needed, tell that to your tell that to your Congress folks from uh, or, from or not. Yeah. And if you disagree, tell them that too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got another comment, another audio comment from uh, a listener. This is from uh, a friend of ours. <laughs> this is great. I, this is the part of podcasting that I sort of didn't anticipate, is that we're building this little little community of friends yeah. out there. You know, it's like Stephen Force, our friend from the Airspeed podcast, and uh, and uh, others. And now uh, Daniel Johnson, who uh, we talked about last episode, who uh, left us a really nice little bit of uh, feedback on the iTunes uh, store uh, site and our listing over there. Um, and uh, we said hi to him last episode. Episode, and he picked up the telephone and uh, gave us a call to tell oh, us a little cool. bit more about his flying. Let's listen to his comment right now. Hey, UCAP. 
Uh, this is Daniel Johnson. I believe you just read me out on your last webcast. I just thought I'd let you know and just see, call up and see what's going on. Uh, I wanted to make one correction to the thing, my uh, comment, where it said that I'm a private glider pilot. Well, I actually am flying privately. I didn't. I don't have my. I'm working on my private. I've sold already, and I'm just working on my private and on my testing. I just thought I'd let you know a little bit of history about my me. You know, I've been flying out of the glider port for no more. I fly out at a glider port in Waynesville, Ohio. It's nationally recognized, and we're having the national national sport class glider competitions out there in June, and I'll be working at that. And I've been flying for since the beginning of last February, and it only took me about 22 hours to get my uh, solo status. And I got my testing done and my solo during a big youth camp we have out there in June. And so, yeah, flying runs in my background. I mean, my uh, uncle's a chief flight instructor at Comair, the affiliate for Delta. Uh, my dad's a private pilot, and um, my grandpa also glides with me. And I just thought I'd let you know, and I'll just say how you doing. I'll talk, maybe call you later. I'll see you. Bye. Hey Daniel, that's really cool. You know, uh, Jeb, last year, last year, last week, you sort of kind of went off on a little flight of fancy about how you thought Daniel was going to like go on to become, you know, an astronaut or something. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. And well, you were not so far off. Uh, obviously, Daniel's. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to hear that. Already pretty far along here. He's uh, uh, he's already working on his private. He's soloed. Uh, uh, he's in, very involved in this uh, glider port uh, in uh, where was it? Waynesville, Ohio. I think mm -hmm. he said. Uh, Waynesville, Ohio. Where the the uh, sport glider class competitions coming in June. That ought to be fine. Yeah, and uh, and and obviously aviation is in his blood with his uh, his dad and his grandfather both uh, involved in flying. So uh, that's it's a, a shame. Glider competitions aren't a spectator sport. Yeah, really. What's what's a glider competition like from the ground? I mean, seriously, I'm not I'm not sure if I've ever seen such a thing. Well, you, I don't know. You go for uh, um, duration, endurance. You go for distance. You go for prescribed courses, um, ah, okay. right? You go for that or spot landing contests. You know, uh, the that big, kind the of big thing. things are the open distance and the mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, and the defined route competitions, mm -hmm. where you uh, got to fly over certain waypoints and uh, whoever does it quickest. I can't even. Uh, I can't even do that with an engine. Yeah, I know. I've I've seen pictures. I've never actually attended them. I've seen pictures of of aerobatic contests. Which is kind of bizarre because there the the judges and the spectators all kind of lie flat on the ground, and because, <laughs> because apparently you know they have to they have to visualize the aerobatic box. That's a big part of the competition, right? right? Yeah. Staying in the box, and so they have to look straight up at the uh, at the uh, aircraft that's competing, and so they literally like lie on the ground and just stare straight up in the sky, which I thought was kind of interesting. The spectators no, that's, apparently, that's, you know, I'm partly qualified for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I got that lying on the ground part down. That's right. Yeah. Really. So, uh, well, thanks, Daniel, for your comment. That's terrific, and uh, keep up the great work, and we'd love to hear more about your flying adventures as time goes on. Good luck on that ticket. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep us posted. Now, speaking of long-distance, high-altitude glider flights, uh, story huh. in the news these last couple of days uh, about uh, a hang glider pilot who had a pretty wild ride. Dave, that's your Par turf. Paraglider pilot, actually. Oh, is that Maybe, what it was? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was a paraglider. Uh, for those of you that may not be familiar... Think of a really wide span, high aspect ratio parachute, uh, you know, the ram air type. Uh, these things, paragliders, are designed into uh, more airfoil-like shapes. Uh, 
and uh, people run off cliffs with them like they run off cliffs with hang gliders. And uh, I believe it was in Austria, uh, lady uh, Australia. I'm sorry, Australia, lady practicing for a competition down under uh, survived a, uh, a, a, a ride into the flight levels after she tangled with a thunderstorm. Basically, suffered hypoxia, passed out. Uh, when she came to, she was on her way down uh, 20,000. She was down to 20,000 feet and uh, got to ride down, uh, walked away from it. Uh, pretty bloody amazing uh, and, and much luckier than a uh, fellow that I wrote about years ago, a glider rider yeah. who suffered a similar experience in New Mexico in a more conventional hang glider. Got sucked up into a, uh, a thunderstorm system and got spit out some 50 odd miles later. Uh, glider wrapped around him, uh, ice encrusted, and he died of electrocution. Mm -hmm. Got struck by lightning up in the storm. This is a really interesting uh, story, and uh, the woman is a German woman, um, 35 years old. There's a picture of her on a on a website we're looking at. She's not uh, at all active. Uh, very apparently very experienced in this. Um, and uh, you know, knows that she's lucky to be alive. It was it was just a very interesting story. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't even realize that you could spend time at that kind of well at that altitude and survive between the cold I, and the lack of oxygen. Exactly right. I I'm I'm mystified, um, uh, and she is just a very very lucky young lady. I think the reason she survived, and and I'm partly talking through my headset here, but the only or, thing or, that and or another part of your. Yeah. The only thing that leads me to believe that helped her survival happen was that the ride to the top and then the spill out of, you know, spitting, you get spit out of the top of these things. And then it's like going over a waterfall. Right. And that the ride up and the ride down were so fast that she wasn't without survivable oxygen long enough to to have it take her uh, take her life uh-huh and and the story i believe said that she was unconscious for a while was that yeah said yeah 30 she, minutes apparently so these things are fairly uh, stable that they'll fly on their own with for yeah apparently oh, so. yeah they're inherently stable uh-huh they're inherently stable you got to uh pull toggles on them like you do a square parachute to make them turn this, this said she went really to 30, no pitch control here excuse me i'm sorry this says she went to thirty thousand feet yeah. Uh, was unconscious for half an hour, uh, regained consciousness at 20,000 feet, flew down and landed safely. Quote, she was covered in ice and yeah. had severe frostbite. Ah, oh, man. man. I'm telling you. It makes me cold thinking about it. Mother Nature is smiling on aviation people these last couple of weeks because there's a couple really? of miraculous survivals. And it's that's the truth. Uh, you know, that's, and it's the truth. that's really something. Anyways. The guys in the King Air with the cracked windshield. Exactly, and the that's German what I was lady down under. Yeah, uh, you know, look, we could we can use all that we can take. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. Well, they come, they come in threes. Let's just hope the third one's a good one. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Another story uh, in the news, or not so much a story in the news. I, I, w I was just sort of surfing around the internet looking for interesting things, interesting aviation stories, and uh, the. Uh, 
the the news group uh, rec.aviation.piloting, which sure. used to be I used to be such a regular in that in those news groups, and uh, I miss those days. But uh, but I, I scan it every now and then to see what people are talking about, and uh, and recently they were into another, a very common subject in to be discussed in hangar flying in general and and on the net, which is the whole subject of st- straight in approaches at mm-hmm. uncontrolled air, airports, oh, right. and uh, you know and as you can imagine, they were going back and forth on it. And, uh, um, I mean, first of all, you know, do you guys have any particular thoughts on this subject? Do, you know, are you in the camp that thinks it's incredibly dangerous and ought to be illegal? Or do you think, how do you think it fits in? I, I don't think it's incredibly dangerous and ought to be illegal. No. I, I point out, first of all, that it is legal. It's, it's one of the FAA recommended pattern entries at, an, at a non-towered or uncontrolled airport. Um, so put, put that aside. Um, if if one uh, um, is looking in the right spots, I don't think anyone is more or less likely to collide with another airplane on a straight-in approach than he or she might be in any other part of the um, uh, traffic pattern. Um, it, it's a normal maneuver. Uh, it, it's something that should be taught. It should be exercised when appropriate. That's now. There's the catch. When appropriate. When appropriate. Yeah. Uh, I've used straight in. Now, my home field, Augusta Municipal, three Alpha uniforms, about 15 miles east of Wichita. If I want to fly over to Benton, Kansas, which is about four miles away, it's not unusual for me to be able to take off from Augusta and fly over to Benton and find no traffic and just do the straight in to, uh, I believe it's 3-4. Uh, on the other hand, there are days when I go over to Benton and there's five airplanes in the pattern. And that's not the time to just kind of go blast it in there on a straight end when you're going to sandwich yourself between a guy arriving and you're too close to and the guy arriving, who's going to arrive behind you and thought that he had more space than that. That's when it's not appropriate, exactly. That's when it's not appropriate. Now, Read some comments on a uh, on a on a website that uh, that Jack linked to us on this, and uh, you know somebody talked about calling ten miles out uh, for years on flying into uncontrolled airspace, uh, uncontrolled airports on, on a, after a long cross country in particular. I'd start calling my uh, inbound status at thirty miles. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Particularly when I heard a lot of airplanes in the uh, in in the pattern, and and always when a lot of those airplanes were doing touch and goes, that means they're never leaving the pattern. They're just going around and around, and after a while, folks doing that. Uh, not to stereotype anybody or characterize anybody, but I know from my own experience, you start doing four and five and six of those in an evening of practice. And more and more, your attention's on what you're doing in the cockpit, getting the routine down, watching the spot go by as you're on downwind, and then boom, somebody comes in there 30 miles out. Oh, I need to keep an eye out for them. Mm-hmm. I'd call again at 20. I'd call again at 10. I'd call again at 5. I'd call again on entering the downwind on a 45, or if I was going to have to cross midfield, enter the downwind, when as I uh, was a mile from crossing the airport midfield. Uh, I want those guys to be so sick of hearing me coming. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and one, another one of the themes in this conversation on rec.aviation was that um, that 
even if it weren't allowed or, or whatever to do a genuine straight in, the differing performance aircraft aren't able to do the same kind of tight patterns. You know, like a Cub can do a pretty tight pattern, but a twin can't do as tight a pattern. And and so the question then kind of is, well, you know, even if you don't have straight ins, the fact that everybody's flying a different size pattern just because of the performance requirements of their airplane, don't you kind of get yourself into the same jam anyways? And that sort of led me to the to the question of is this going to be an increasing problem as we get VLJs uh, more and more into the everyday uh, you know airports that we fly into? You know, is this mixture of different performance airplanes a problem, or or is the system designed to handle it? Well, let's think about the VLJ performance real quick. First yeah. off, you know the performance difference there is not all that great, uh, particularly when you get down into the approach and landing parts of the envelope. Uh, you know, a lot of these airplanes are, they're part 23 airplanes. Yeah. So, uh, e- even though they're twins and jets, uh, uh, to make them as useful and flexible as possible, the designers have given them fairly reasonable approach and landing speeds so they can get in and out of 2,500 foot airports. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means they're going to segue fairly well into, uh, into the pattern with most other GA traffic. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't see VLJs in and of themselves um, are going to be flying patterns at, at much faster speeds than we have now with uh, um, a medium twin, a medium pistons twin, for example, right. a Duke yeah. or, or a Navajo or something like that. Um, you're always going to have, um, I won't say issues, but... Uh, you're always going to have considerations when you're mixing Piper Cubs and, and Piper Navajos, That's for, ex- for example. Uh, I don't think it's going to be any better or any worse just because we have VLJs. Now, the pilots of those VLJs have to understand where they are. They're not at Kennedy or they're not at Dulles and they're not at LAX and they're not, uh, they're not even at, at Macon, Georgia. Um, they're at Podunk, um, uh, Arkehoma, at an un- uncontrolled airport. Some of these planes may not even have radios. So they've got to revert back to their their basic stick and rudder and look out the windshield skills. Um, that that's If there's going to be a problem with VLJs at non-towered airports, that's where it's going to be. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not buying into this doom and gloom that, uh, you know, despite the sales and production forecast of some of these outfits, <laughs> that, uh, you know, in five years we're going to have VLJ swarming around little airports like, you know, flies at a picnic. No. Uh, even though and, and airports even, are sh- shrinking breeds, there's still thousands of them out there. And right. the idea that hundreds of them are going to be using the same airports at the same time on a daily basis just yeah. defies logic. And even if we do... Most non-towered airports out there have access capacity. Absolutely. Um, it's not like they're handling 60 it, airplanes an hour. Exactly. If, uh, one of the reasons they're non-towered is because they don't have much traffic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I kind of uh, I don't get too stressed about that. And I would be happy to see it, quite frankly. Uh, I, I would so, be happy to. That would be a nice problem to have. 
would be so flying uh, from Augusta to Ponca City, Oklahoma, in the middle of the week with no traffic, a straight yeah. end to Ponca City is okay. Flying to Ponca City on the first Saturday of the month when they're having their fly-in breakfast and there's 20 airplanes in a pattern, straight in may not be the brightest thing. Yeah, that's day. that's that's a bad idea. One other point about VLJs, if if we didn't make it, is there's no reason for them to fly a straight in unless they're coming off an instrument approach and in low visibilities. They should be flying and, and, and are perfect, perfectly capable of flying a normal pattern uh, like any other heavy twin. Yeah. So right. there, there's no there's no magic here. Yeah. Well, this just brings this just brings us back to the one aspect of aviation that defies easy education, and that's judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the best judgment comes from experience. The best comes experience comes from mistakes that you mistakes that you survive. So right. uh, you know, and if you if if you're really good, you learn from other people's mistakes and don't make them yourself. That's right. Well, we're starting to get close to the end of our allotted time here. A couple of little things I wanted to throw in here. Uh, first of all, uh, Dave, you and I, we decided we were going to torment Jeb about this a little bit. Um, this is only, <laughs> this is this is simultaneously sobering and pretty cool, if you ask me. Uh, Jeb this past week tells us that he got from AO, it's AOPA, right? From AOPA, AOPA. your thirty-year membership pin. You've been a member of the of the AOPA for thirty years. Cool. That is Congratulations. Cool. Thanks, they, thank they, you. They still let people your age fly airplanes, though. Huh? That's that's true. That's true. They do. That's um, doubly cool. I, it's, it's doubly a shame cool. Orville and Wilbur aren't still Orville and Wilbur aren't still alive. Well, so I was thinking about, about that, them, though. you know, just the other day about how we used to share beers together and whatnot. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's congratulations. Thirty years in AOPA. I, I thought I'd been in a long time, but I'm. Only, I was thinking. I think. I think I've been like fifteen years in AOPA. Really? Yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm the junior. I'm the junior one here then. We're going to have a 10-year pin last year. We'll have to build a you know wheelchair ramp to the airplane for me. Yeah, there, there you, you go. go. There you go. Uh-huh. So, another little bit of news here. Um, the, there was actually a big gathering this past weekend. The uh, Women in Aviation uh, International had held their uh, co- big convention conference this past weekend. And uh, we haven't forgotten about that. Um, but uh, coincidentally, uh, Amy Laboda, uh, who was with us on an earlier episode and is a friend, a buddy of ours, and uh, is the editor of uh, Women in Aviation magazine, is going to be on the show next week. So, uh, in addition to telling us uh, her all of her experiences about aviation, I'm hoping that she can tell us a little bit about some of the the uh, interesting things that happened at uh, that conference. It's a great, great great gathering yeah so we'll talk more about that uh, next time Absolutely. Uh, the final little tidbit i have and i i bet you guys have some too but, but is uh, one of my heroes if you will uh, in aviation uh, is bob hoover and uh, bob celebrated his 85th birthday this past week and uh, just want to kind of send out my best to bob hoover yeah. um anyone who never had an opportunity to watch bob hoover fly his uh his energy conservation uh, air show routine just really missed out because it was awesome. And uh, the amazing things he did in that uh, commander was just... Dave, buy the Dave, video. Yeah, I was yeah. say, there is a video out there, and, and, and if you, you should buy the video. It's pretty amazing. Um, Dave and I were fortunate enough to be at Sun and Fun. I think it was 2000, Dave, yeah. when he flew the last routine in his Shrike Commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll dig out for the uh, for the show notes. I'll dig out a photo uh, I took um, of the airplane on the ramp uh, and, and and during the show actually also uh, several photos. Um, Dave, I thought you were there with me. 
I was nearby. Okay. Yeah. It was amazing. You know, and I don't know whether I speak for others, but I discovered after going to air shows for years and years and years that a lot of the acts at air shows kind of became the same. I mean, not to d- yeah. dismiss them, you know, because they're all, you know, remarkable exhibitions of skill and, you know, so forth. But but sometimes, you know, that's just kind of the same thing over and over again. And there's a handful, but, but over the years, there was always a handful of air show routines that I would go out to watch every mm-hmm. single time. And Bob Hoover was absolutely one of them. Keep in mind also, Bob Hoover um, was a World War II fighter pilot. Yeah. He was a, a peer of... Uh, of over uh, Europe in World War II, and that's, that's, uh, that takes some hair. Yeah. Didn't he, didn't he fly chase on, uh, on uh, Jaeger's... He, he, he flew chase on on some of them. I don't know about the first one. Yeah, and he was among that gang of uh, mm-hmm. of pilots who came back after World War II uh-huh. and flew all these captured airplanes as research missions, which I think in a way is is pretty damn courageous in itself. Uh, they were flying yeah, I, all these unusual airplanes to try and figure out what they could do. I mean, it's sort of like another kind of test flying. I mean, it's exactly another kind of test flying. But that's right. uh, um, he had he has had and, he, and he's although he doesn't fly anymore, I don't believe. Um, he is still with us, and uh, he had quite an incredible career as a pilot. And uh, oh, I've seen Bob at the last couple of uh, safety stand downs that Bombardier has here every. Uh huh. Yeah. So, uh, congratulations! Happy birthday, Bob! Happy birthday! Anything we missed, guys? What's uh, any other li- items you want to throw in here? Yeah. 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 Dave? First off, my what congrats to my congrats to the volunteers here in Wichita. That uh, got the uh, uh, B-29 bomber dock in good enough shape to be rolled over to an exhibit space at the Kansas Aviation Museum. Uh, but the mission for this airplane is a long way from done. Dock will be, if they succeed in their goal, the second B-29 left in existence that's airworthy. Uh, They've still got some airframe work to do and some engine work to do. Uh, they want to build a hangar for it. If you'd like to learn more, kansasaviationmuseum.org is the website to check out. Dock uh, was rescued from the desert where it had been used for target practice, and it was part of a squadron of B-29s uh, named after the uh, seven dwarfs in the uh, Disney movie. <laughs> yeah. I've seen uh, I've seen cool. a, I've seen a couple of the pictures that are on that website, and boy, they're just getting it into remarkably beautiful uh, it's condition. Just in beautiful shape. Some of my friends here have been volunteering uh, on it for years. They've even got folks volunteering uh, uh, and doing work on it that were on the original. B-29 bomber line here at Boeing, Wichita during World War II when they built 1,600 plus of these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. I, I was just going to say, I, I, we're running out of time tonight, but I, I wanted to talk about Doc tonight as a way of talking about favorite aviation museums that we've visited over the years, uh, and I'd like yeah. to spend some time talking about that in the future, so let's save that particular one for a save, future episode. Yeah. But, uh, Jeb, yes, your final thought here? Yeah, just a uh, um, kind of a shout out and a recommendation here uh for years i've been getting um something in my avweb email box uh from a guy by the name of bob webster it's called bob's junk mail uh bob periodically sends out this junk mail uh, uh, he calls it uh which is just one of the more interesting and enlightening emails that i get in my my uh, comings and goings bob webster from prior oklahoma he's a pilot but it's not a it's not a uh, an aviation oriented newsletter. 
it's not really oriented about anything. It's it's he he talks about uh, um, a variety of things: astronomy, uh, high tech stuff, uh, aviation. He's he's something of a yachtsman. He's got some interesting trips that he's taken uh, uh, aboard a sailboat. Um, just a genuinely interesting, stimulating, thought-provoking uh, little email, and uh, I thought I'd just bring it to everybody's attention. Oh, well, cool. uh, it's on the web at, at uh, xpda.com. I'll, I'll do that phonetically. X-ray, Papa, Delta, Alpha, dot com, slash, junk mail. Okay. And he has back issues of it. It's just very well done, and I enjoy reading it every week. Sounds every like fun. I'm definitely going to check that out. We'll yeah. put the, And we'll put that in the show notes like all the other URLs. And cool. let, let me stuff one last little thing in here real quick. Okay. Congratulations to Tom Pobrezny and, uh, and, and his Washington team at the Experimental Aircraft Association. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This very day, today, Thursday, the 22nd of February, they got commitment from the FAA clarifying the new air tour rules as not applying to the EAA Young Eagles flights because they are non-compensation charitable flights. So Good. all the stuff we Excellent. talked about last week that you know was worrisome, higher pilot times, restrictions on uh, how many times you could do the flights, uh, uh, notification requirements. Uh, Marion Blakey herself was part of the uh, meeting with Tom this morning. Uh, not, not a worry anymore. So congratulations good. to all the folks Very on good. Josh yeah. for making great job, great. Tom, Earl Lawrence at EAA, and also Doug McNair uh, at and, EAA. And, I'm sure and, worked and, very hard on that. And way to go, FAA. Way to go, FAA. For yeah. all the FAA bashing we do, you got this one right. Thank you. You don't bash. <laughs> you just educate. That's educate. Right. That's right. Educate. I hit him. I hit him again. Learn more about Jeb Jeb Burnside and all of his activities. His uh, magazine is aviationsafetymagazine.com or also read some of his writings at avweb.com. And uh, Dave Higdon, learn more about his photography biz and all the other things he's into at davehigdon.com. I'm Jack Hodgson. You can learn more about my stuff at jackhodgson.com. And, of course, visit us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website, uncontrolledairspace.com. Uh, lots more activity on the blog these days. We're starting to receive comments and have a lot of discussions. Sure. So check it out. Thank Keep you. Those blog comments and phone calls coming, we just love them. We do, we do. Thank you, everyone, and we'll talk to you again next time. My life keeps spinning. It's a wild ride. It's a wild ride. It's a wild, wild ride. I'm gonna you can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Crown if you think it'll fit, put it be